Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 270 is recorded live January 21st, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are enjoying weather you would expect in January and February and middle of the winter in the Midwest. We've got snow, we got ice, we got cold. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac? Doing very well. Glad to be here and enjoying the weather. Yes, if you don't mind it a little cold, a little icy, this is exactly what we should be having. And it hasn't been too terrible. Monday was a little dicey. I want to say, I'm trying to think, the kids might have missed a day of school this week. Oh, wait, no, Monday was a holiday. Yeah, and Tuesday was uh, lots of snow. Yes. Monday was a holiday. I had to go in. My wife and kids were off. And they were supposed to, they had a school event in the evening, and they actually did cancel it because of snow. Sometimes you wonder if that's just because eh, nobody wants to drive in and deal with it. Well, you figure what? Last week we had the 65 car pile up. Oh, yes. Towards Lawrence and Hartford. Yep, that was Sunday. And then Tuesday, they had multiple fender benders from here to Lawrence, because uh, I went to Ann Arbor again up to U of M. And once you got past uh, Lawrence, smoothed out really nice. I checked on MDOT, looked at the uh, on-sky channel, uh, you know, the um, cameras they got up on the road now. Yes. You can go to MDOT, take a look at the camera where you want to go, and you can see the road conditions. Uh, so we figured out once I got past Lawrence, getting back to Ann Arbor wouldn't be a big deal. Coming back home, checked it again. Once you got to Hartford, that's when the weather started again. So oh, checking the weather makes a difference. Yeah, and it's a way that we are here on the side of the state where we've got you've got lake effect snow coming. And the way the highway comes, it comes underneath Lake Michigan in Bering County where we're at, it curves. So no matter which way the direct, the wind is coming, that's going to make it bad. There's a section of that highway, and we've had usually about once every two or three years we'll have a 30 to 60 car pileup, and we're way ahead this year. I think this is the third one so far. Yeah, yeah it's always bad, especially when they're going to have fatalities like they did this time. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Let's see if I've got any of these articles queued up. I thought I did, but I'm not seeing them. Yeah, mine won't come back up on that one. I'm yeah, Malta halts a bid to extradite British scuba diver over a fatal accident. Stephen Martin had been wanted for involuntary homicide after his girlfriend, another man, died near Gonzo in 2014. Uh, they abandoned their attempt to extradite uh, based on decisions from lawyers acting for the authority of the Maltese government. And it came two days before the scheduled high court hearing in London at which Stephen Martin, 55, had been due to appear against a European arrest warrant last year, an inquest by the Brighton and Hove, Hove coroner into the deaths of Larissa Hooley, 48, and other scuba enthusiast Nigel uh, Haynes, 59, off the Maltese island of Gonzo in June of 2014 were accidental. Martin, a tight, an IT uh, manager from Little Hampton, West Sus Sussex, 
was the most experienced diver in the group, was therefore deemed by the Maltese prosecutor to be responsible for the welfare of his friends on a dive. Maltese determination to charge Martin, who had tried to rescue Huli, caused alarm among British scuba divers and prompted threats of a boycott of the Mediterranean island. His barrister extradition expert Ben Cooper, who appeared at a unscheduled hearing on Monday, said he was delighted with the outcome. It's been a long ordeal for Mr. Martin, Cooper said. He's greatly relieved to be able to put all this behind him and to be able to travel abroad freely. Malta has withdrawn the European arrest warrant and is discontinuing the prosecution. Both Hooley and Haynes were found to have died from immersion pulmonary oedema, a leakage of fluid from the bloodstream into the lungs which prevented oxygen from being absorbed. The condition is not fully understood. Responding to the decision, uh, Martin said, I am overwhelmed. This has been an utter nightmare for me, and I am just so relieved it's over. I feel I can finally start grieving for Larissa and Nigel. I just can't keep back the tears. The chief execute, uh, executioner, <laughs> the chief executive for the British Subaquatic Club, Mary Teatley, whose organization had supported Martin's fight, said the decision was a victory for common sense. It was a tragic accident, and Stephen is among many who are still grieving for the loss. It's a victory for common sense that these laws have now been dropped, or these charges have now been dropped, allowing Stephen to move on with his life and grieve in peace. We've asked the Maltese Authority for further clarification on their guidance for divers. In the meantime, we are advising divers to check local regulations before any dive in a foreign country. Martin solicitor Edward Lewin Jones law firm Hodge, Jones, and Allen said, This brings the end a long and painful nightmare for Stephen. He should have never been accused in the first place. It's rare for an extradition request to be withdrawn. Often when they're, they are, it is as a result of lobbying outside the courtroom. And BSAC are to be commended for the work they've done to highlight Stephen's plight in the highest level. Yow. So three people diving. If you're the most experienced and the other two die, it's your fault? Well, I remember when we talked about this, we were wondering... How can you extradite a guy for that, you know, from one country to the next like that with no proof? And it's like you said, he's the most experienced, therefore it's his fault he didn't do something. Yeah, and did they have enough information to to really press charges? Well, obviously they they thought they did because they did press charge. Yeah, uh, so it just uh, a little bit of pressure and you know tens of millions of dollars in lost revenue. They decided, eh, maybe we won't prosecute. But it didn't appear that uh, to be, I mean, you're hopeful that the British subaquatic group was actually doing it because they didn't think he was guilty and not just because he was a British diver. Well, with the money, I don't think they do it just because he's a British diver. It appears justice was served correctly. And then um, this this next one happened a little over a week ago. I think it's been going on. We didn't cover it last week, but there were there was a diver who at one point, was nearly left. California Tour Company says that left missing scuba divers shouldn't have been doing business because of tax issues. Tour broke company that left a missing diver behind in Catalina Island lost the right to conduct business in California nearly four years ago due to tax issues, according to state records. Sun Diver International of Long Beach has unfiled tax returns in 3,991 in unpaid taxes. According to the Franchise Tax Board, records show the tax board suspended Sundiver International on February 1, 2012. When a company is suspended, they are not supposed to be engaging in any business. They are not allowed to collect any money. The banks have the rights to close their accounts. Suspended businesses are also not allowed to defend themselves in court, according to state code. Wow. The restrictions could become particularly troublesome for Sundiver's owners who happened... After what happened on December 29th, that morning, Laurel Silver 
Falker of Tustin went diving for lobster off the coast of Catalina Island with Sun Diver Express. The boat left the dive site without realizing Silver Valker wasn't on board, according to Sergeant Dave Carver with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The Sun Diver Express returned to the search for Silver Valker, Culver said, but was unable to find her and notified the Coast Guard. Authorities have been searching since that day, but haven't found her. Sun Diver left behind a diver once before off Newport Beach in 2004. That diver, <laughs> Daniel Carlock, in 2010 won a lawsuit against Sun Diver and operator Ocean Adventures for $1.68 million. Sundiver International previously operated as Sundiver Incorporated under owner Ray Arts. Sundiver Incorporated was also suspended by the Franchise Board Tax Board on May 1st, 2018 for an unfiled tax lien state record show. So was Sundiver Charters LLC on March 3rd, 2014. Arntz, who still registered with the state as Sundiver President and CEO, did not respond to requests for comment on the story. On October 8th, post from Arts on the company Facebook said Page said he was passing the company reins to uh, Kylie Heller, who's listed the state documents as the corporation's secretary. An interest is seeing Sundiver International develop a cohesive unit. We'd like to announce that Captain Kylie Heller has been assuming responsibility for management operations. She'll be the point lead for all business-related activities. I wish her well in this difficult and challenging part of our business. Heller designed, de- uh, declined to speak with the register, which is the paper we're referring to, ocregister.com. Uh, weather permitting, Carver said dive crews will be back on Sunday to continue to search for the mother of two. I don't think I they just, found her. I just looked for an update, and they did not. Uh, like she said, she was a mother of two, grandmother, oldest sister of six. She had a fiancé, a daughter, a cousin, niece, aunt, and a friend. She was a diver, scout leader, special ed teacher, and in communications with the community, she had extended families. And so... No, they did not find her. Hmm. So this is so sloppy practices. If you leave a diver back and you don't know, there's no excuse for that. Well, it makes me wonder, was she lost on the bottom or was she lost when she surfaced? Well, you know what I'm saying, because I would think if she was on a surface waiting for a boat, she'd inflated the BC, they would have found her. Well, exactly. I'm thinking that she had a problem underwater, didn't come up, but that's not an excuse for not looking or oh. being aware or searching. That she was missing. Because I, I thought they said the water in which she was diving was 120 to 160 feet. Is that something you had seen? Uh, I, I read two or three articles. I'm trying to see. Yeah. What I'd like I know to know is, is how many divers were on the trip with her. Yeah. Because one of my theories is that when you start getting above eight or ten divers, is that it becomes more likely they're not going to remember. I mean, six divers... You know, even eight divers, ten divers, it's a little bit easier to see. But when you start getting 20, 25, 30, you have to have a really good procedure to make sure that you're just not missing somebody. Yeah, but you got, if your buddy diving and your buddy says, I don't know where she is. Well, that's the other question. Were they practicing buddy diving? Uh, was it a case of, the, was she in a group of three? You know, the other two came up and they just, you know, did they see, did somebody see her underwater? There's so much we don't know as it is common with a lot of these stories, but it makes you wonder. Uh, this other article here talks about that she'd suffered a back injury years before and was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. causes chronic pain, and that uh, she used diving as a form of therapy. Yeah, I, I, I believe it. was better. Yeah. That's, that really sucks. 
and that not quite as bad, but still not a good thing, is in Florida, scuba divers and spear fishermen are balking at 68 new reg- regulations recommended to protect coral. Stakeholders concerned about Florida's coral reefs have quietly spent the past several years meeting under an umbrella working group known as Our Florida Reefs, OFR. Now there are 68 suggested regulations on the table that could affect uh, Floridians under the ocean in South Florida. Many proposals are controversial if OFR has its way. Scuba divers will no longer be allowed to spearfish because, you know, obviously spearfish has to break coral. Uh, the masses who flock to South Florida to pilfer lobster during the mini season each July will be relegated to a mere six lobsters per person per day instead of 12. And you can forget about having a colorful parrotfish in your saltwater fish tank. Furthermore, you may be limited in where you can toss out your anchor for the next hedonistic yacht outing or or yank unsuspecting fish off the seafloor if all, if at all, if you have your attention now, don't I? On Wednesday night, fishermen and divers at our Florida Reef presentation at F.E. Scuba and Pompano Beach were all too ready and eager to pummel representatives and scientific advisors. Me, the community, asked questions, proposals, alternative recommendations, as well as a few colorful suggestions on where the proposed regulations could be creatively placed away from the rays of the sun. <laughs> well, I, th- this uh, particular author had a position. Uh, unfortunately, we don't. Let's see. Can we find out? Is there? I'm, I'm trying to scan the article, see if we get any of the. I was too. I was looking for how many rules there was. Well, that's the problem when you have working groups who are made up of one constituency is that they tend to come up with this group think thing. And, you know, if you're a bunch of, uh, you know, vegan, don't hurt, don't harvest, don't hunt anything type of people, uh, you're going to come up with a little bit different answer than maybe an, an alternate form of uh, environmentalist. Yeah. Uh, let's see. One, one of the quotes, uh, the FWC would like to decide whether to take the action or work on their own process, which would eventually bear an amendment to the marine life rules and be published as fishing regulations. Thou shalt not harvest vegetarian fish. I'm not sure what that means. Okay, I just picked up, it's called N68 Revision to October, Our Florida Reefs. And I'm looking at some of the items. And a lot of it, I don't understand how you're going to do it. Reduce, regulate, uh, fertilizers, herbicides, fungicides, and pesticides to reduce nutrient and pollutants, loading to improve water quality, provide protection to the reefs, promote the use of Florida in a friendly ma- fashion. What's that got to do with divers? Um, all of that is materials that are on shore that will run off. Let's uh, if I can find something on the divers here. Well, here, here's my problem is before you go and do this, you have to, you have to define what is the issue you're trying to protect? Have they identified that there is problem with over-harvesting a fish? So it seems like everybody's so anxious to ban spearfishing on scuba, but is is there a problem with the, spe- the fish species in general? Because what some of the arguments I've heard on spearfishing is that when you're on scuba, you have extended amount of time down, and you can be selective in the animals that you take. And what that's meaning is that you're harvesting only the best, which is sometimes what they want. And if that's the case, you can you can achieve that with certain types of limits, size limits. You can have a slot where you can't take anything small or anything large. Uh, so the, the so there's 
other ways of doing this than just outright banning. Well, they're also talking that when they anchor their boat to go diving, their anchors screw up the coil. coral. And by minimizing the number of fish or whatever you can take, you're not there as long. But then to me, it seems like you'd come back more often and damage the coral if that's the issue with your anchor. Yeah, if, I, if I can't get the fish I want in a weekend, maybe i got to come three days. But there's other alternatives for that. Wouldn't you say that moorings? Why not have a mooring program? I'm, I'm saying most of the items seem to be concerned with fertilizers and runoff. I don't know what the deal is there. The other item says you can't spear fish using a rebreather. Sort of makes sense. There's yeah. an unfair advantage. You can sneak up on them because the bubbles don't frighten them. You can't use a power head or explosive device. But you, but you already can't spear fish in general. Why be specific to a rebreather if you can't use scuba? What do you, what do you, do you, you like double doing it? Yeah. Are you trying to close a loophole? The, uh, the, well, the fertilizers and pesticides is about water quality, and that's a general thing that you need to do. But a lot of that is on education. And what we've done, and specifically in Florida, Florida is an extreme case, is that rivers are supposed to meander. They're supposed to have soft sides. What Florida did is they went through and concreted in these straight runs to get water out of the land so they could dry it up to make it uh, usable that they created all sorts of problems. So you, you need swamps. You need soft edges to your, your rivers and streams to help fer, uh, to, to pull that out. And, and obviously you also don't add to it. You don't you know, have livestock on the bank of a river, for example, and you don't fertilize. And I, I think that's something that you need to work with. You need to work with people who can make the change and let them come up with a plan. You need to work with farmers and, and tell them what the concerns are and have them come up with a way of, of doing it. Uh, well, I'm reading DiveBuddy.com. They have a whole article on this, and it's pros and cons. And one of the guys wrote here, they seem to be concerned with lobster and spearfishing, but his comment is, to the point, in Florida, you are not permitted to puncture a lobster, so it's illegal to spear them. So what is the issue? So spearfishing, you're not doing it for the lobster. No, spearfishing, you're doing it for fish. Right. You you get the lobsters by hand. Uh it's, he said, this guy here, it's quite interesting, says, I have a problem with the way the, with the misleading way the article is written. Most of the proposals are controversial. If OFR has its way, scuba divers will not, no longer be allowed to spearfish. The masses who flock to South Florida to do lobster during the mini season would be regula- regulated to six a day instead of 12. Uh, in fact, it's an outright, out, outright lie. This is what this is what the for-profit companies do. You don't want you to believe, so they can manipulate the uneducated, than the true sportsman who pays and manages their own sports, um, gets their bag limit reduced, so that commercial fishermen can overfish and make more money. So they think it's that aspect of it. Oh, that they think that commercial fishermen were trying to encourage it. Yeah, and it's again, you said spearfishing. You don't spearfish lobster. Is this only aimed at lobster? Because they they. They prefaced it talking about coral reefs. Yeah. Well, that's what he said. It was misleading the way the article was written. Well, so they now they also have uh, overturned current legislation that restricts bans on plastic bags. Why would you have – this is a mismatch. This is a, a collection. Offer free pump-out stations to boaters. Why? They're, they're talking about you don't want to dump your waste into the water because that's polluting it. Isn't that illegal already? 
Yes, it does. So just enforce the law you've already got. It said here, yes, fishing with a spear gun uh, is a problem. Boat anchors, uneducated divers, treasure dredgers, chemical pollution. I said, what are you talking about? Treasure dredgers. There's a there's a really a serious problem of people dredging for treasure. There's also, that's against the law, too, to use blowers. Right, but you're only dredging for treasure if you're in a spot where it's at. It's not, uh, yeah, I, I have a problem with this. Yeah, this this is just a big mess. Thank well, you, Florida. You're a domestic terrorist. <laughs> I'm a domestic terrorist? Is that what you said? You have, the, you have the domestic terrorists shielding themselves with militia in order to steal a resource that belongs to all 350 million plus. Where's, was this is the same article? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the heck? Uh, like I said, this, this over here was really good, the controversy, the pros and cons. Wow. These are public treasures that some might want to use for their own selfish pleasure, pleasure or profit. Belongs to our kids and grandkids and their kids. We should be able to see reefs and turtles and whales besides in an aquarium video. You should only fix problems that are problems. So you're a domestic well, terrorist if you spear fish. Wow, <laughs> I love it. So the, the first thing is to identify: Are we over harvesting? Because we have proven in many states that a well-managed fishery is sustainable. So you need to identify, is it not sustainable? And you bear the brunt of that comparatively between the commercial fisherman and the recreational. And in many cases, do you really need a commercial fisherman? Recreational, is it, to me, I prefer recreational to be available for, for those types of activities than to have it for a commercial guy. Yeah. Uh, because what is that commercial? It's kind of like gleaning. It's like if you have the national park system. And then, and then there happens to be apple trees out there, so then I go and I harvest all the apples of the trees. You know, why is that necessary? You know, if I'm going to have property and I'm going to farm, you know, that's one thing. But to go in into an environment and just take from it in the way that's not sustainable, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. So that's, uh, yeah, this is. We'll need to check this one out and see if yeah. we can get. And it, and it may be that it's just too early. Maybe this is how all things go, and a lot of this stuff normally you know, after the first review gets pulled back because, yeah, but it's, okay. Zebra mussels. There there can't be any controversy in zebra mussels. Well, there is in Arkansas. Said uh, zebra mussel infestation, and here's why Norfolk Lake really doesn't want them. The news-leader.com, the Norfolk Lake in north-central Arkansas is full of big striped bass, just like nearly... Nearby neighborhood Bull Shores Lake, but unlike Bull Shores, Norfolk is yet to be infested with razor-sharp invasive zebra mussels. U.S. Army Corps wants to keep it that way, and here's why. We're already seeing their impact on Bull Shores Lake, and it's not good. This is according to Bruce Caldwell, a natural resource biologist for the Corps. They are already extremely productive and will spread through the lake at amazing rates. They will attack, attach and encrust on anything in the lake, dock chains, ropes, bolt, boat hulls, and water intakes at the dam. Swimmers quickly learn how sharp zebra mussel shells are in lakes where the thumb-sized creatures have taken over rocks, boat ladders, submerged logs, and flood-covered bushes. Their shells along the lip are very sharp. People swimming the lake where, the zebra, where there are zebra mussels, if they're not wearing shoes, they will cut their feet. There are a few reasons why the uh, interception of zebra mussels encrusted boats from Bull Shores Lake that was heading Norfolk Lake was such a big deal a few weeks ago. There's no magic bullet right now that will kill kill zebra mussels in a lake, 
but they're once they're established, prevention through education is our biggest friend. Once they get in the lake, there's almost nothing you can do. The Corps has gone to extreme measures to try and stop zebra mussels elsewhere. At Palm de Terre Lake in central Missouri, the Corps took drastic steps to drain the lake level three feet a year ago after a dock from the, the museum-infested lake in the Ozarks was briefly placed in the cove. The idea to expose the shoreline and freeze any zebra mussels in that area, the Corps also hired a company to treat about three-quarters of an acre of the lake with copper, copper sulfate, where the dock was placed in hopes it would kill the mussels. Did it work? I don't believe it did. At one time, there was a thought that seven... They diving dying period would kill them. Drying period would kill them. Now we know they can live twenty to twenty five days, especially if they're in the most moist air environment. Now we think thirty day drying period to kill zebra mussels. The new research is significant because zebra mussels in their villager or larval stages can easily hitch a ride in a fishing boat, lie well the boats bilge in pools of water in a trailer, even a boat's trailer carpet. The big fear is that someone will fish one day at Bull Shore Lake and then try their lark luck at Norfolk Lake depositing a load of young zebra mussels when they launch the boat. And I agree, that's going to happen. So they're making their case, which we've got zebra mussels out of control in Michigan, and all you can do is slow them down. Well, like we know, in Lake Michigan and all the Great Lakes, the zebras have been put out of business. There really isn't a problem with zebras. It's quagga mussels. Now, the, the picture they showed did look like a zebra, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. These are zebras that are got here, but again, the quagga came in secondary and overpopulated and killed all the zebras, basically. Now we're talking an inland lake that didn't have the direct flow so far mm-hmm. of quaggas, it appears. So are but quaggas worse? Lake, say again? Are quaggas worse? Yes. Uh, quaggas are a little different. They breed in cold water all year round. Quaggas are the ones that you'll find at 950 foot deep in Lake Michigan. And that's why they took over from the quaggas or from the zebras. The, the bottom line he's got here says, Campbell said that as far as he knows, there is no upside to having zebra mussels take over a lake. Absolutely. There is no upside. Well, but the only upside I could think of is that it did clean the water. But all you're doing is taking what's suspended in the water and you're, and you're sticking it in the bottom. So if you have toxins heavy metals or anything like that, you've now just concentrated it into the zebra mussels. Well, the other aspect they've got is when you have to get visibility, you have more microorganisms because you got good sunlight penetration, and you have more algae formations. And you're going to have more seaweed. And then you could probably then have those uh, killer uh, algae beds that we've had in Lake Erie. Oh, yeah, the the, uh, algae blooms. Yeah, you don't have those. Toxic area that kills everything in it. And then also rampant piranha. <laughs> <laughs> but, That's a separate issue there. Yeah, yeah. Before the show, we were watching a video on, on piranha. So that's where that comes in. Insider joke. Uh, this next one out of MSN, and this this article makes perfect sense. And the title of the article is called The World Has Discovered a $1 Trillion Ocean. As chairman of investment of Guggenheim partner Scott Mira thought he had a realistic view of how big economic challenges climate change poses. Then at the Hoover Institute conference almost three years ago, he met former U.S. Secretary George Schultz. Minard recalled him saying, Scott, imagine you woke up tomorrow morning and the headline newspaper was, World has discovered a new ocean. The opening of the Arctic, Schultz told him, may be one of the most important events since the end of the Ice Age some 12,000 years ago. 
And while Schultz spokesperson couldn't confirm the the conversation, there's no doubt the meeting of the Arctic ice cap and the unveiling of resources below presents mind-boggling opportunities for energy, shipping, fishing, science, military exploration. Russian Russia even planted a flag on the seafloor at the North Pole in 2007. Energy and shipping have been first up. Norway made a national fortune drilling in the northern waters. And Arctic fossil fuel exploration has become a more prominent part of the U.S. energy policy. Melting ice means that in summer months, cargo can travel 5,000 kilometers from Korea to New York, rather than 12,000 kilometers it takes to pass through the Panama Canal. Warming waters also open up access to commercial fishing stocks, making the Arctic a growth source for food. Not long after the Hoover Conference, Miner joined the World Economic Forum Advisory Council. It's tasked to develop guidelines for those nations looking to do business at the top of the world. The framework is released in Thursday in Davos. History of economic development in the region of the world has really been fraught with massive mistakes, says Minard, who began, who before Guggenheim worked at Credit Suzy and Morgan Stanley. It really seems that someone needs to start developing a minimum standard as a guideline for economic development in the region. Arctic Investment Protocol developed by 22-member WEF Global Agenda Council puts forward sustainable practices similar to initiatives developed to mature economies in recent years. So what they're saying is that they estimate that there's everything that was under ice before, that with the planet and the ocean going through a warming cycle, is now going to be $1 trillion in potential revenue. Current aspect, I have a big problem with all the global warming and statements like that. Again, in the paper the other day, they referenced that this is the hottest year for Earth in the last 120 years, because that's as long as we've been recording temperature. 120 years, okay? Here's the other aspect. Geologically speaking, we live in a time period of intense climatic change. Since the last one million years, our species and human forebearers experienced a dozen or so major glaciations of the Northern Hemisphere, with the greatest occurring around 650,000 years ago. In this period of extreme ice buildup, Ice advanced so deep in the Midwest from its center around Hudson Bay in Canada and deep into Germany from its center uh, on the Scandinavian Shield. So much ice was collected in these two major regions and several lesser ones that the sea level dropped by some 400 feet and the overall global temperature was lowered by around 5 degrees centigrade, 9 degrees Fahrenheit. I won't go into more of it, but we're talking about Oh, my God, the world's coming apart. We're heating it up. We've been turning this for 120 years. Well, we already proved here over a dozen massive changes of more than we're concerned with the one degree warming in 120 years. I I agree with you. I I think we're in a normal cycle. We oh, may be, we, maybe <laughs> we're accelerating it a little bit. That's possible. I'm more concerned about pollution in general. And I think that the environmentalists are doing a disservice by how they are are going global warming. With, to go from a political standpoint, I think a lot of this is cooked up because they think that people have such a short attention span that if they can't make it, if if we can't, if they can't convince us that our kids gonna are gonna die and explode, you know, from UV rays, that we will never do the right thing and not pollute. 
I'm so, just saying, if, 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 if it's been doing this for millions of years, it's already been proven it's been doing this for millions of years. 120 years in this aspect is nothing. Right. So I, I, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, I, I think that they that we need to be focusing the energy on not putting heavy metals in, uh, like we've got in Flint where we've got contaminated yeah. water. You're running through pipes. Why yeah, can't we deal with that? The stuff that affects people today. Yeah, Why do we got to be worried about a one degree change over a hundred years? Yeah, I, I agree. Good water is is paramount for the world. I mean, you take a look at India; they have ter- tremendous problems with with right. with fresh water. Right. Clean water. Forget the fresh part. Clean water. Well, right. Well, the, the we we learned about this. The, my my kids I talked about last week are in robotics. Dean Kamen, who is the engineer who started that program, has developed a device that you can put into. Uh, places where they've got polluted water and it will filter the water. He could not find any organization in the world who's prepared to take up the effort to put those into these communities and help them be used. So you've got problems with, with populations that are dying from dysentery, polluted water, uh, families where a third to half their time a day is spent looking for fresh water, clean water to drink. And he could not find, he went to the UN. There was nobody in the UN who, they, they just looked at him like he was crazy. It's, we don't do that. So why aren't we focusing on those issues? Why do we, it's, we, we want to think that we've accomplished something by turning a light off a little quicker or not, you know, burning a bonfire in the backyard when you've got all these other immediate needs that need to be taken care of. But a uh, billion dollars. So the, they're, they're saying that's the upside. And with that, and what that means is that that's where there's money, there's conflict, and we are going to see some uh, ugliness. Okay, how scuba diving is warding off threats to the future. And I have to admit, I didn't get a chance to read this one, so this could be a bunch of complete garbage. They said scuba diving is an important tourism market, generating a billion-dollar industry worldwide. African countries are highly recommended for divers. 20% of the best dives in the world are located on the continent. Some of the most popular destinations include the warm tropical waters of the Red Sea, where it's home to uh, Thistle Gorm uh, and Shark in Yolanda Reef and Al Sh- in uh, Sharam El Shrik, the high latitude reefs in the southern Mozambique, the cold waters of South Africa as a host of great white sharks, old mines and lakes and marine parks. Scuba diving has grown in popularity over the past two decades. This is evident from the rapid growth of the number of certifications issued worldwide. The number has grown to 23 million at a pace of about 1 million every year. But the industry is not without its fair share of challenges. Some of them are such as environmental degradation and the effects of climate change and the threatening of the industry. Uh, challenges, global economic downturns led people to cut down on, and they go on and on and on. So they're saying what we've always said, which is diving is good for your economy. But I'm not sure... It's quite as much on the uptick as they make it sound. I don't think we're seeing that here in the U.S. I don't. Yeah, I don't think so either. I know that diving is popular in China right now, considering their their population. But how many Chinese are affluent enough to afford scuba diving? So we have a, a what, what's the Earth population right now? About seven billion. So you've got that many billion people, and you're getting a million a year scuba diving. So that's just a drop in the bucket. And that's that's probably including people who dove once in a resort course and really will never dive again. 
we were talking about that as why we don't have any young people in our club because they can't afford it. The same thing with jumping and flying. You can't afford it. Well, I couldn't. Uh, I would have, I would have dove since the time I was in high school and I really couldn't have afforded it when I learned to dive. I barely can afford it now, but it's well, because I made the investment. Well, it's like me. My daughter did because I already had all the gear, you know, tank, the expensive stuff, tanks, regulators. So if you've got someone in the family who's doing it, I think you're more likely to do it and stay. Yeah. I, th- I think the important thing is if you're going to grow the sport, one thing is it has to be attractive. There has to be a lifestyle associated with it that young people will find attractive. Uh, you also need to make it accessible. And when they do do that initial trial dive, it's to make ex- something exciting that they think they can do again. And for us in the Midwest, to get to the point to where most people would get to a dive where they would find really exciting is there's that long curve. To me, it's shipwrecks. I mean, that's that's <coughs> our claim to fame is the shipwreck diving. It, it's not to see colorful fish because you're not going to see a lot of them. Well, like we said, shipwrecks is why Bob dives more than anybody. I mean, from that aspect, Larry likes shipwrecks. Me, I'm a grubber, so I like rivers and inland lakes. Video is a good shot, photography, but for that, you need good viz. So down in the south where you have color and vegetation and clear water. Well, and, and, and trips. And true. And, and like, like caving, that's exploration. You that's you know what I'm saying? That, that's heavy-duty, regimented, safety protocols. You've got to like what you're doing to be doing caving. Some of the most beautiful photos I've seen of people diving has been have been cave diving. Yeah. But I imagine there's also the, the, a lot of dives where you're just going through a tunnel. But it's the idea of exploring of what might you see around the next corner that no one has ever seen before you. Yeah, as soon as you get in the water, as soon as you're as soon as you're ten feet underwater, you've gone into that rare place that a small percentage of the population, I would dare say, less than one percent has ever been where you're going to go. And you know, each thirty meters into that cave, you've you've taken that to a much smaller point to where you can rapidly get to where less more people have been on the moon than where you're going to be going. Yeah. Well, the other item we just mentioned a moment ago, thousands, thousands, thousands of years ago, water level was down 400 feet. People, possibly, other items were in existence, left remnants of their passing there that is now covered by water. Yes. So the aspect, what can I find? I mean, I'm a hunter. I like to look. I like, mm-hmm. I'm looking for treasure, but treasure doesn't mean gold. It's something you haven't seen before. Like we do with our, you know, shark teeth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of shark teeth, but it's to those who go down and specifically look for it. There's millions of those shark teeth out there. Yeah. If, if, I mean, that's probably an understatement, probably billions. Yeah. But how many people went down and got their own? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure I really believe it's been increasing, and I don't think that tourism should be the reason that the sport expands. I can see where the tourism is where – You'd expand certain parts of the market, but I think again, like you mentioned, diving down in the Caribbean is totally different than diving where it's not warm, colorful, and right. good views. 
Yeah, to me, I think diving in the Caribbean is like a reward for drive for diving up here. <laughs> you, you dive up here, you see all the things we have to go, and then that's just something you get to see someplace else. Yeah. The Handicap Scuba Association has organized a 50-hour dive-a-thon on March 11th, Miracle Water Scuba Diving Quarry. With the event fast approaching, they're seeking divers interested in filling spots. The event is scheduled to go underway Friday at 10 a.m. local time and wrap at 1 p.m. local time on Sunday, March 13th. They are restricting open water dives to only during the daytime and advanced water be able to dive at any time. Organizations offering prizes to divers who get the most hours. One of the highlights of the event is a visually impaired diver, Francis uh, Needing, diving with sighted diver Bron LaRoe will be blindfolded during his dive. The pair will try to navigate a course without any ropes, using only knowledge of the course to complete it. A raffle is associated with their challenge where people buy tickets for yes, they will complete it, or no, they will not. The funds raised this event go to assisting South Africans with disability in participating in scuba diving through training them, partnering with dive buddies, and providing opportunities to do open water diving. Handicap Scuba Association SA works with people with physical disabilities, including people with spinal cord injuries, cerebral palsy, spinal bifida, amputation, muscular dystrophy, cardiac conditions, cystic fibrosis, paralysis, polio, post-polio, and stroke. They also work with people with vision impairments, including people who are totally blind. The organization also supports divers with brain injury and deaf divers. This is identified by Parasport News. Uh, project launched in July of 2014 by Laura Hale. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is basically uh, Australian Para, uh, Paralympic Committee. So this is basically started by the Australians, or by Laura anyway. Uh-huh. So I think this is in South Africa when they say SA. Isn't that? Sorry, well, it said uh, who has served as a Wikimedium in residence at the Australian Paralympic Committee. And I didn't speak the French for the rest of this. Uh, this lady here has contributed over 500 articles to the English Wikipedia about Paralympic sport classification, disability sport organizations, and individual athletes. I'm trying to find we're on the, the association website, which is www.parasport-news.com. So if you want some more information, you can go there. But I think even though they didn't give a location that it was in uh, – South Africa. Okay, I just kicked you another link that I'm at. Yeah, you're, you're at the about page for the website. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Parasport News is physically located in Swedensboro, New Jersey. Wow. Editorial staff is based in Spain. That'd be a long commute. That would be a long commute. That might be fun, though. Yeah. This is obviously worldwide. So that, that the Parasport News is the is the organization that's covering this, but they say who's sponsoring it. Well, let's see what our team says. Well, that's going on. Yeah, the Parasport thing wouldn't let me pursue it. It's taking its time. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and go to the next article, and this one really wasn't diving related, but I thought it. It related to what we're always trying to advocate, which is access to our nation's waterways. And this is a case that was reported in MSN.com and uh, the Washington Post. A moose hunter and his hovercraft tell the Supreme Court Alaska is different. 
So John Sturgeon's path to Supreme Court began in a broken-down hovercraft on a gravel shoal in middle-of-nowhere Alaska. He was on his way to hunt moose. Instead, Sturgeon became target of three officers of the National Park Service. Hunting wasn't the problem the hovercraft was. Even though Sturgeon had used his 10-foot rubber boat for years in the Yukon Charlie Rivers National Preserve, the, o- the officers pulled out the rulebook and said, noisy hovercraft were banned in all national parks, even Alaska. If Sturgeon was lucky enough to get it working again, they said, he could still not board it, even to get back to where he came from. To be frank, they were real jerks, Sturgeon recalled. He, uh, his, is that Pike? P-I-Q-U-E? Led to a lawsuit, and the lawsuit led to a surprising grant from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's interest led to an outpouring of support that has startled the businessman and moose hunters. Strangers and politicians packed fundraisers to pay for hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bill. Admirers extol his last frontier uh, virtues in tribute videos. State congressional delegation has filed a friend of the court brief taking his side against the federal government. He's like Alaska's version of Gideon versus Wainwright, said Senator Dan Sullivan, referring to landmark decision that established the right of criminally accused to a lawyer. He's going to vindicate the rights of all Alaskans, uh, Sullivan said. It might be difficult for those in America, as some Alaskans refer to the low of 48, to divine the outcome from a case that many know is the courts were surprising, uh, surprised the justice decided to accept this the distinctly underwhelming decision where federal officials legally justified in enforcing the hovercraft ban in Alaskan preserves. It was deemed by the federal government's lawyers to not be in itself one sur- surpassing significance. I'll agree the answer lies in a statute that applies exclusively to the 49th state. But Surgeon's petition landed to the court, whose conservative members increasingly are on alert for signs that federal bureaucrats are busting through their limits of statutory authority. It comes amid an ongoing siege in Oregon where armed protesters are taking an unlawful but dramatic stand over the federal government's management of the vast western land holdings. And they go on and on talking about different things. But what it comes down to is that they're trying to say that Alaska's is different and then you can't apply rules blindly to the whole country. And there is precedent that certain cases need to be considered on their location, specifically Alaska, and that Alaska should be treated differently. But what shocked me is the fact that there's a certain right to navigate waters and that they're banning access to these waters and restricting them. I mean, they can they can basically say that on these navigable rivers that you can't use a motorboat. There's nothing that the federal government is limited, uh, as says that they can't prevent you from using in the state area, and they're, they're, they're hiding behind a national parks. Now, in Alaska, 60% of the, the state is a park. Well, let's go back to one item. You, you mentioned through the limits of their statutory authority. There's a big controversy on this that, one, the government does not own land per the Constitution, and that items like this of the parks and preserves are not done correctly because they were not done by law. They were done by statutory authority. I sent you a link uh-huh. It was on Facebook about this type of controversy since they brought it up about the, uh, the people there in Washington State, I believe it is. I'm Chris Ann right, Hall, the ones I'm that are, uh, attorney. I've taken over that, that park area mm-hmm. a minute ago Yep, in Oregon. Right. 
And this is one of the reasons that they feel they are correct in what they're doing. They gave examples of how much land the federal government owns and right. says it's authorized per the Constitution. Those were done by people, not by the, the people, meaning us. Right. It's not allowed. And it's an interesting item. If you haven't seen it, I sent it to you for a link. We could put that in the show notes with this and say, which one do you believe? It's a good article. Yeah. Well, I think part of the the government controlling land allows us to run up a massive debt that we have no hope of ever paying. And how, some, someday, how, how that? well, if I'm going to borrow money from a bank and I've got perceived assets, that's collateral. What's to lose? So when you look at how big the national debt is, that does that the land that the federal government technically has control over is worth more than that national debt. Yeah, but per the Constitution, that's not true. That the states own their own land, the government cannot. Well, that's, that's the way this, this is what the article is. Even the states that have military bases, those bases belong to the state, not to the government. And and, and for those for those play. outside the U.S., what we're talking about these are constitutional rules or issues. Right. So that's the way the Constitution was set up. the 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 U.S. formed together as states who are basically afraid of a federal authority, but they realized that individually they could not sustain against economic powers of Europe, France, Spain, Great Britain, uh, and I'm probably leaving a couple countries out. Uh, you know, Germany to an extent, Russia, they would have just dominated North America, divided up, and you had all these problems. So as the people who were living on the on on the continent, not you know the ones who probably had the most right to it, but the ones who were here, we knew that we had to form together. So we specifically set up rules to keep that in check. You know, and some of them include uh, you know the, the the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and. Uh, you know, how, how military can be set up. You know, we, we're not supposed to be able to have a U.S. federalized military that's able to go into different states and do police actions. That's illegal in the U.S. And that's also why you can't vote in the District of Columbia is because that is the only place in the country where there actually is uh, federal land. And they didn't want to have a big standing government uh, army in the District of Columbia that would go and invade Virginia and everything else. So that's that's kind of the, the history be, behind why we did things and why we have these rules. And people tend to forget it, and it's, it's easy to do. If you don't study law and history, uh, you don't understand why some of these things were put in place. And you, you used to have to do, if you were going to be a new state, the that, org, that group of people, you know, say you're Arizona, you had to get together on that property, come up with a constitution, and then petition Congress to add you as a new state. So the authority is within the states, not within the federal government. Unfortunately, the government doesn't act that way. No, they they don't because it's, we've let we've let them off. We've let them. We've taken the responsibility and let them run with it. Right. Well, and there, and there are certain things that have been ruled that that is federal responsibility, but the federal government's responsibility is only in stuff between states, not within the states themselves. And you have the Second Amendment, the t not the Second Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, which specifically comes in, and that this was an amendment that was added afterwards just to reinforce what 
was already in the Constitution, which says states have the the ultimate authority over the states. Uh, and the reason why it goes the other way is because the federal uh, government has the ability to tax. So what they do is they overtax to be able to dish the money back to the states to be able to control policy. So there, there, there's our soapbox. But that's what's going on here. But the thing that concerned me and why I think it was diving-related was the restriction on being able to navigate. A hovercraft is a perfectly fine vehicle. Is it a little noisy? Maybe. But why does it need to be outright banned in general? And then in Alaska, which is bigger than many countries, you can't use a hovercraft? You know, this is also, um, we talked about this already for Florida. Remember a couple of months ago, they were going to ban it in certain areas of Florida. You've oh, seen the, the, the jet boats, yeah. Yeah, and the well, the the fan boats, not yeah. necessarily the jet boats. That's I, that's what I meant the those big. Well, I don't remember what they call them, swamp buggies or something. Or mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's well, just just the nature of things. So something to keep aware of, something to be involved with. Um, then how's this for a find? You're out doing an inspection on a wind farm, <laughs> and, and I'm assuming they mean a wind farm, a wind farm that is off a coast. And then you end up finding a shipwreck. Divers working a wind farm project have discovered the wreck of German U-boat sunk more than 100 years ago. SMU-31, which disappeared after leaving Journey, uh, Journey, Germany on uh, 13th of January 1915, was found 56 miles off the coast of East Angela. Video footage shows the 57.6-meter-long vessel lying down uh, 30 meters in the North Sea with damage at its bow and stern. The wreck was discovered by Scottish Powers Renewable and its partner Vittenfall in 2012, but has only now been officially identified. Mark Dunkey, marine archaeologist for Historic England, says SMU-31 was commissioned into Imperial Germany Navy in September 1914. On January 13, 1915, the U-31 slipped its moorings and sailed northwest from Wilhelmshaven, for a routine patrol, patrol and disappeared. It is thought that U-31 had struck a mine off England's east coast and sank with the loss of its entire complement of four officers, 31 men. The discovery and identified SMU-31 by Scottish Powers Renew- Renewables in Vittenfall, lying si- not some 91 meters east of Castra Sea, Norfolk, is a significant achievement. After being in the seabed for over a century, submarines appears to be in remarkable condition with the conning tower present, and bows partially buried. Wow. I mean, that's that's kind of cool. Wouldn't that be nice to find? Absolutely. It's only 90 feet down. Yeah. Well, and that's what amazed me is that it's 90 feet down, but how far is it off the coast? 50-some miles? They, yeah. They say here? Yeah. That must be a shallow shelf then, that direction. <coughs> yeah, off, North Sea. Yeah. Off Lake Michigan, 50 miles, you're in about 800 feet of water. <laughs> That's a that's a long drop. And what do you got next, sir? Well, the the next one I have is uh, we talked about it a little bit last week. Steve Lewis and Jill Heinhart were diving in Belle Isle, and uh, they're continuing on. So if you can go to uh, uh, decodoppler.wordpress.com, you can see his blog where he talks about it. And then you also have www.intotheplanet.com, uh, which is Jill Heinhart's uh, blog. And you, if you want to get right to it, it's, it's forward slash Newfoundland. But they've been uh, regularly posting updates, and they've looks like they've been having some some good luck doing some dives. 
it appears to be that the desire is to turn Bell Island into a uh, diving attraction. Bell Island was a mine, uh, was an island where they did a lot of iron ore mining uh, to the point that during World War II, U-boats were targeting it to affect uh, the iron production. So worth a look. And did you see the map of the the mine? Yeah. Uh, They're pointing it out and they're saying, yeah, you think we found it all? (laughs) There's plenty to explore. So they're trying to get to encourage people to go down. And they show, they show like a little photo shot, slideshow where it shows, it shows uh, Bell Island Volunteer Brigade has been continuing its backbreaking work preparing the dive site for the expedition team. And that was from back in January 17th. They're building platforms, decks, docks, 12 picnic tables installed for briefings. Stairways have been adjusted to walk over pipes. The area where divers enter the water is called Cross Section 23, and the pipe shaft in our staging area benches is on Pillar 22. The picnic table will be in room on Cross Section 22. Build it, and they will come. Now, do they do they say what type of attraction this is going to be? I did not see that exactly. I mean, do you need to be cave certified? Is it going to is it going to be like uh, Bonterra, where there's opportunity I, for non-cave divers? I'm looking in this, and that's an enclosed space. Period. No surface. Yeah. And in Bonterra, those are limited areas. So so they have a challenge making this a destination because if you have to be a certified cave diver to take advantage of it, that significantly limits. uh, I'm going to guess that less than 1% of the scuba diving population is cave certified. I I don't know, but I would hazard a guess you're probably correct. Yeah, because you got to figure that 95% of the people who are certified dive you know, less than 10 times and never come back. So of the hardcore divers, like our group is an example, is anybody in the mud club a, a cave diver? We've got some cavern divers. Correct. But no cave divers. Now in tech diving, I think you're going to find a little bit more in cave divers. I know that uh, some of the Wisconsin side of the state of, the, of, of Lake Michigan, some of those divers are cave divers and they'll do when the Great Lakes is closed because of ice. Uh, many of them will do a, a Florida excursion and get some cave diving in. Yeah, there's a lot of difference between cave diving and entering a wreck. I mean, a lot of similarities, but at the same time, a lot of a lot of significant differences. Right, right. But I but I do know just from following them, like uh, you know Jitka. Yeah, I know that she's a cave diver, and you know, of course, you got Steve Lewis and Jill Heinert. You know, they're they're well known cave divers. Uh, many of our Florida listeners who we've we've talked to, many of them are cave divers. But we have the spots down there, uh, up here in Michigan. I'm, I don't think we've really got any cave diving caves. There's some some minor caves that technically could qualify, but nothing of any significance. Not that you're going to have a destination. So that does it for the regular news. And then there's one article where. We've got some potentially cool scuba gear. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about Open ROV and their new ROV. Well, they've also still have their, I don't know if you call it classic, they're calling it Open ROV 2.8 Mini, and that's that, that design you've seen where it has a cylinder with your, your vision equipment in it, and then it's got the, the rest of the, the case. But there's that they're still refining that even with their new system. Uh, Mac, what do you find attractive about this particular unit? Uh, it's proven, it's small, compact, and appears to work pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah, it, you're right when you say it's proven. I think it's been out at least three, maybe four years now. And the nice thing about when you open source a project 
is that you get feedback from a lot of people. And I like the design a lot better now than when it was originally. I remember there's a lot of unknowns, like, you know, how's the tether going to work? Uh, what are you going to use for control system? Uh, are you going to build watertight motors, and how are those going to work? And they've really refined them. So you're getting to a nice quality product. And uh, what are these going for now? Uh, you can get it for from about eight hundred to about thirteen hundred. Yeah. Uh, the thirteen hundred dollar one had like lots of extra extra spare parts and pieces and batteries. Yeah, and they gave you a case <laughs> and they gave you a long tether. I think that was a hundred meters. Uh, yeah, it is. I believe it's hundred meters for that one. Yeah, so I think the original was like a hundred, and I believe this one was three hundred feet. Right. So it's an open source project, so you can do as much or as little as you want, and they sell those kits, or you can download everything and have it all built and made for you. Uh, so maybe after I get done with my robot season with the kids, maybe I'll this this will be the next thing, build something like this. Well, the cameras are getting really really good. You figure four oh, yeah. KV now or a four the yeah. four thousand on the GoPros alone. Yeah. Well, and then what a lot of people do is attach a GoPro to it because you've got a high def camera. Since it's tethered, uh, looks like right now they're doing. Do they say what camera it is? It look, I think at one point it was a Microsoft HD camera that they were going with, live HD camera. Um, well, it said high def uh, webcam, 120 degrees, FOV with audio. Yeah, I, I think that's a Microsoft web camera they're using, which is pretty decent. Uh, actually, the, the the robot my kids are building right now, that's the same thing that they've got, except they're doing wireless. Um, you know, it's got a game controller. Uh, I, I've heard some people are talking about making heads-up displays for these so that you've got, a, like, a helmet on and you're diving it that way, like a first person. I have heard people making their own, basically, of doing nothing more than taking a couple of GoPros, putting them in a, like we do, our uh, plastic carton, mm -hmm. add batteries to it, make extra lines to the batteries for lights on both sides of the the carton, do nothing more than lower the carton down with weight in it over known areas of, of where you got a bump on the bottom mm -hmm. and then very slowly move their boat and then bring it back up to see what they've got. And some people seem to have gotten pretty good response with that. Yeah, kind of the uh, a different take on the old drop cams. Yeah, and if, if it's not bad, you know, if it's flat out, taking two lines, one on the bow, one on the stern, keeps the carton in one direction so it's not like rotating on the bottom. So we're, they were concerned on how do you keep it in one perspective. And obviously if you've got a tether, I've heard where the people have put a propulsion device as simple as a, uh, a, a, a pump, underwater pump, you know, your bilge pumps, mm -hmm. and you have it left and right. And since you've got visual on your cameras, if you wire them and such, they can actually use their thrusters and position the camera. So, I mean, that's about as cheap as you're going to get. Yeah, but the, the way of uh, it's getting is a lot of these components are really inexpensive. So but that does look good, and I think the other pro for this one was the ease of putting it together. Your tool list is nothing you probably don't already have in your basement. Yeah. Uh, I mean, other than acrylic cement, you know, and an, an acrylic cutter. Yep, I agree. Wouldn't mind trying it out just to see what it did for us. Yeah, at that price, though, you could we could actually just almost pass the hat, and you could get enough money to get one. I had to get that carton out and a couple of GoPros with some external, you know, connections right. to, it. or not even GoPros, it's something with the housing. 
that you could feed a good underwater connection to, so you could see it on the on the boat. Well, I would like something like that because there's times where if you're mowing the lawn, wouldn't it be neat just to be able to see what's on the bottom? And I think some of the people in the club have already done that, by the way. Oh, okay. That's why I sort of mentioned it the way I did. (laughs) (laughs) For that same reason, it's a lot easier if you want to check something at 60 or 100 feet is to go right over the spot, drop that down, because you know how long it takes to get prepared to go in, get out on a hot summer day. Well, what I'm thinking about is uh, how about you make a tow fish? You put a clear dome in the front. You put the high-def camera in there. Uh, you can even put some tools on. Yeah, maybe, that might be something I'll build. But you got to be close to the bottom for that. Well, true. Your visibility. You have to exceed your visibility. Yes, right. Uh, but a lot, a lot of the stuff for you know, other than when we hit, hit clay banks or you actually come into an object, uh, a lot of times when we're mowing the lawn, it's a pretty consistent depth. Right. I, I said, well, I have a, a torpedo made for hours, and depth is depend upon how what kind of scope you want to have on your line and your speed. Right. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that might be a project for this year. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Let's go ahead and talk about diving that's been going on. Uh, I think you got out this last weekend, didn't you? Yeah, I got out and uh, down in the river again. Uh, we had some snow, just very little skim ice. Uh, getting a report back today, we've got about 10 foot of ice on the shoreline now. So you'd have to go through that to get to the open water. Current has increased. I actually had better visibility last week than the week before. Even though the current was stronger, the water is probably up two and a half feet. But, uh, you know, once your face numbs up, it wasn't bad. <laughs> so we're probably getting into peak cold water uh, conditions. Was there much ice on the river? Uh, uh, it has been changing based upon what kind of current you got. Uh, the other day on Tuesday when it was like nine degrees, you had a good covering on the freaking river. Mm-hmm. Today, you've got that 10-foot of barrier on, on the shoreline in the middle is free-flowing. But I can't imagine that the inland lakes are not getting much uh, thicker. But I'm concerned where we've had the 9 degrees, the 35 degrees, if we're getting some honeycomb ice. Yeah, or maybe some layers where you might have water seeping up over the top of the, the other layer. Yeah. So I'm hopeful, you know, we're hopeful we can get back out to Lake 16 and mm-hmm. have some ice this year. Oh, that'd be, that'd be nice to go and do that dive again. Oh, yes. Uh, I haven't been out to Singer Lake yet to see what it's like. I'm betting we've had some good ice, ice making temperatures this week. But like you said, it's, it's, we, we've been getting, if not above freezing, right to that every yeah. day. The, the ice part would be nice at a couple of different lakes. They had 22 inches of ice on, uh, diamond last year i did not know they had that thick of an ice but to get where it's really good you need a snowmobile from a couple of perspectives to carry the gear out and back and for safety because if you had a problem it'd be nice to be able to get to and from something in a hurry but it would be nice to be able to do a uh, shipwreck dive through the ice there oh yes yeah I, I would love to do that i'd love to dive on a shipwreck i just imagine that that makes diving on that wreck completely different because it's hard to visualize that site because visibility, I think the best I've seen there is maybe 15, 20 feet. That good, huh? Yeah, that good. (laughs) And it's best beginning of the year. I've, you got to hit it like April. You get much beyond that and it's pretty bad. 
So any plans to go out again this weekend? Well, I've got it posted. I'm, I was looking for some responses to see who might be interesting to going out. I can't dive by myself because i got to have somebody zip my suit. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I, I think I saw uh, who, who else was diving or at least posting a lot. Uh, Kevin, I think, was doing some posts. Yeah, Kevin was up tonight, the 21st. Oh, yeah, that's tonight. He went to uh, Battle Creek, uh-huh. uh, Benda Performing Arts Center. Oh, yes, they had that program. They had a program tonight uh, that was a little different. And let's see, I think Ted was talking about coming down maybe to uh, do shore support. Nice. And Mary Beth and Jake are going to check. That's who gave me the report of uh, 10 feet of ice on both sides. Yeah. And uh, Mary Beth bought down the, brought down the baby trailer, mm-hmm. which makes a hell of a difference when you're changing out. I, it, It's making me want one because we've been using the ice shanties. And between being out in the cold and in ice shanty, that's nice. But what's awesome about those trailers is that they're already up. Yeah. You don't have to put them up. You don't have to waterproof them, or at least you know the the canvas. You don't. I you know, I don't don't have to shove it in my car and then pull it back out. Mm-hmm. It's just you attach it to the back and you go. Right. So that's I'm I'm really looking for one. But and the difference though, of course, is. When the guys bring the toy box out, we really need to be reimbursing them for gas because oh yeah, yeah. use the trailer when you use the heat. It's really nice. They've got to take time to hook it up, bring it down, and that's not cheap with the big trucks to haul that big toy box. And then Lucy it's, feeds you. Oh yeah, it's easier <laughs> with with Jake's because his is a smaller one. Right. Yeah, that's uh, not you're, you're losing a couple of miles of the gallon on Jake's. Where in the the, the toy box, you know, he's he's. Probably it's costing them significant, like double what it would normally. Just yeah, you're talking them. ten miles a gallon. Yeah, yeah, you're not getting much mileage with that. So there's some thought to there that we should reimburse them for a couple of the past dives that spent a club sponsor dive that brought it for everybody's convenience, like the New Year's dives. Yes, he ought to be reimbursed for that. Yeah, yeah, pass the hat at least, or uh, or make sure. I mean, when we go out on their boat, we contribute to gas. Well, when he brings the trailer, we should be, con- you know. Yeah, and I'm just as guilty that I have not been contributing. Well, I haven't, honestly, I haven't even thought about it. Uh, I mean, a little selfish of me, but it just when we're we're diving and somebody does a trailer. Now, the same thing though is is I I don't think I've used it this year. They brought it to stuff, but it hasn't been cold enough to me. And you know, being co-ed, it was just as easy for me to to do my normal what I would do in the summer. Yeah, it hadn't been that cold, so. But just for the fact that it's there, if you needed it, it's it's worth kicking some in. Well, New Year's, it was damn well nice having because <laughs> it was raining, snowing, sleet. Uh, and the rivers, the last two day, uh, weekends, uh, nice winds, rain, combination. It's, it's really nice having that little sucker. And, and again, putting the suit on, I can do that pretty much good. But when we want to take that wet one off. Mm-hmm. It's really nice to be able to do that. When you're not getting rained on or sleeted or snowed on. It's a difference between being rushed and uncomfortable and just taking your time and it being pleasant. Yeah, a 20-mile-an-hour wind when you're naked is cold Yeah, because yeah. you're wet, yeah. possibly wet. So do we have anything to plug on the Mud Club site, www.mudclub.com, or mudclub.scubaobsessed.com is the actual URL? Well, I didn't really have anything to, to uh plug but you know we keep talking about we've got how many events coming up well you've got uh our world underwater you've got the seahorses event 
uh, Ghost Ships, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, I think, has. Ohio's out this year. They're going to hold off this year and revamp their programs and make a more directed audience. But February is the first one mm-hmm. at uh, Great Lake Shipwreck for us in Ann Arbor. And then the following weekend is Our World Underwater in uh, Rosemont. So, so Ann Arbor's before Our World. Uh, our world. That's, that's a first, isn't it? That seems to flip sometime, yes. Yeah, because usually it seems, and maybe I've just got a bad memory, but it seems like we our world always seems to be the first one. And then a week or two later was Ford Seahorses, and then uh, Ghost Ships in Milwaukee was almost late. It's a, it was, was that like April almost? That's, that's, that's March 18, 19. March 18. Yeah, and Easter's early this year, isn't it? Isn't this another early Easter year? I couldn't tell you that. Yeah. So you've got that coming up. If you're going to be to one of the events, let us know. We'd be interested to see who's who's going and where. Uh, you can visit the Scoob Obsessed site, www.scoobobsessed.com. And at some point, I will get content updated. I'm working on like three other websites for people, and I just haven't been able to get back to it. Uh, you can listen to us on WRVO Radio, Reno Viola Outdoor Network. Uh, if you like our show, there's plenty of other shows on the great outdoors. Thanks them for putting us up for another season. And uh, we got uh, Rich Sinowick, Diver Sink. You want to make sure you listen to his podcast, which is currently active and going. Uh, and let's see what else do we have. If you have any comments, feedback for the show, the show at scubobsess.com. And we talked about doing video. We've been doing some testing. And in fact, today on the episode, we started off doing some video recording. And we're able to determine a way that does not work <laughs> for recording video. So we'll be coming up with an, uh, another alternate plan. Uh, we're, we're slowly figuring this thing out, but it's quite a bit involved. Um, so I think that about does it. We've gotten to that time of the show, I do believe. Anxiously awaiting. Okay, I'm going to zoom it up, make sure I can read it. So here we go. It was a cold winter day when an old man walked out in the frozen lake, cut a hole in the ice, dropped in his fishing line, and began waiting for a fish to bite. He was there for almost an hour without even a nibble when a young boy walked out in the ice, cut a hole in the ice not too far from him, and dropped in his fishing line. It only took him about a minute, and wham, a largemouth bass hit his hook, and the boy pulled in the fish. The old man couldn't believe it, but he figured it was just luck, but the boy dropped his line again within just a few minutes, pulled out another. This went on and on until the old man couldn't take any more since he hadn't caught a thing all this time. He went to the boy and said, Son, I've been over here for over an hour without even a nibble, and you've been here only a few minutes and caught about half a dozen fish. How do you do it? The boy responded, Absolute vodka. Why use this? The old man asked. So the boy spit into his hand and said, You have to keep the worms warm. Uh, yeah. Would that make the the worms also a little drunk too? Possibly. It just might have that extra little flavor down there. Yeah, and, and then and then who's who's giving this kid some vodka? Maybe that's the the deeper question that needs to be answered. The guy he's giving the fish to. <laughs> yeah, 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 you could do a little bit of a split. Uh, so on this note, go out there. I was going to say keep warm. Go out there and get wet and stay safe. <laughs>